I'm Sir David Carter um, and until August 2018 was the National Schools Commissioner for England and as part of that role uh, had oversight of 11 of the largest and most significant multi-academy trusts in England and of course one of those was Academies Enterprise Trust and it was an organisation that I got to know very well and this podcast, The Blueprint for Change, will attempt to explain and describe some of the strategies and some of the most effective initiatives that are starting to make sure that this trust becomes one of the best examples of a turnaround trust in the country. I was delighted to be invited to take part in it because I care about AET. I cared about it when I was working in the DFE and I care about its journey since because it is one of our largest trusts and it educates probably the largest number of children in the country. And if you believe as I do that education is the key to happiness, to prosperity and to future success. We need organisations like AET to thrive and to be successful. When I joined um, the DFE as National Schools Commissioner, having been the RSC for the South West, I had some insight into how AET was operating because I knew the South West Academies very well. But I think there were three things that I felt were lacking in the way that the organisation was running at that time. And it was these three elements that I spent quite a lot of my time talking with Julian when he was the new CEO, uh, with the board and with members of the team that I met. And they were these. School improvement was very much in the intervention phase. Uh, it is expensive, it's short term. And one of the challenges for this organisation was to move out of intervention into prevention so that people could see a real optimistic future about the educational delivery in this organisation. The second was that the oversight had to be tightened. The oversight at the trust, the oversight at the school level, both at local and national and regional level. Um, and that was an important element of understanding what the real challenges were on the ground. And the third, I think, was to build the confidence that this trust could be a significant player in the sector. Frequently in the 2016-2017 era, I heard people say, well, of course, they're going to find it difficult. They're, they're very, very large. They cover this huge geographical footprint. But who says that the largest trust in the country can't be the most successful? Who says that geography has to be a barrier? Who says that school improvement at scale can make this difference? So the conversations that I've been having over the last four or five weeks have been about school improvement. They've been about governance. They've been about leadership. They've been about finance. They've been about marketing. And if this is a blueprint for change, then it serves my goal of trying to help multi-academy trusts understand more about what some of our other colleagues in the system are doing and what effective practice looks like from the classroom up and not from the trust down. I hope you enjoy it. So this morning I'm joined by Julian Drinkle, the CEO of Academies Enterprise Trust. And I'm, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because um, AET uh, was a trust I got to know very well in my role as National Schools Commissioner um, um, and really enjoyed uh, the work that I did with Julian and with Jack Boyer, who was the chair at the time. And in many respects, the work that Julian has done as the CEO of this organisation is the pivot into all of the other conversations that we're having uh, in terms of the journey that AET have been on. Um, and I wanted to begin, I suppose, by asking you, when, when you first heard about Academy's Enterprise Trust, what was it about the role that attracted you to apply to become the CEO of this organisation? Um, well, I think there were two things that really struck me. The first was um, 
the size and scale of AET and the the purpose of AET. One of the things that I always thought was super attractive about AET was that it unashamedly said we want to be uh, inclusive, we want to be able to help every kind of child, every kind of school, every type of community. And I just thought, you know, what a wonderful platform. I have a very eclectic view of education. I've worked in education in lots of different parts of the world, in lots of different sectors. And I just thought that the variety and inclusiveness of AET was was amazing. And that it was such a large platform that if one could do things well and do things properly, that would just have tremendous impact. Um, so I remember um, probably within the first couple of weeks of being an SE, one of the ministers I was reporting into talking to me about AT and talking to me about the, the, the challenge from their, from their perspective about where it was. And the challenge was really, I suppose, couched in terms of performance, in terms of the, the outcomes for young people, um, another set of inspection grades that were disappointing. Um, and because I suppose the role that I'd had as having been a Matt CEO and, and understood more about school leadership than other colleagues in the team was, so, so where do we go next with this? Um, and it seemed to me that the, the need for strong governance and strong leadership was absolutely pivotal before we thought about fixing some of the things. Although it's a little while ago now, what, what did you find when you came into the role? And did it surprise you? Were there any things that were unexpected? I had a huge number of people telling me that the AET situation was one of the most difficult and complicated ones around, um, that the finances were wrong, that the governance was wrong, that the operational model was wrong, um, and that uh, some of the personalities and, and strengths within the organisation you know, weren't, mm. weren't as they should be. Um, so I came in re relishing the challenge, knowing that uh, things were were difficult, knowing that there was a financial notice to improve, that Ofsted was 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 down on AT, and the press and various members of the public were, were down on it as well. Because I wasn't really meant to join AET until March of 2017, um, but I looked at the data. And I said, I need to get in the door. And I managed to get in the door of December 2016. Yeah. So effectively, three months early. Uh, nothing surprising other than I think that things were more complicated, more difficult, had been spiralling at a slightly faster rate. And so my appreciation uh, in those first few days was that it was going to need more pace, more decisiveness, um, you know, more bravery. Than, than what I'd anticipated. So I came in, you know, eyes wide open to it being an enormous challenge, but the quantum and, and scale of that challenge was a little bit more than, than uh, I probably originally expected. Lauren Costello was one of the first people that Julian Drinkle appointed, bringing her in as National Director of Primary and SEND. I asked her what she focused on in the first 12 months. Number one, I think, was to get a universal acceptance that although the primary sector of the trust was, in AET's words, doing okay, it was still significantly below any national expectations. So in a shallow pool, primary was looking like a superstar, but actually 
there were only 47% of children leaving AET schools ready for secondary, having read-write maths combined at an appropriate standard or making any sense of progress. But there was kind of an acceptance that this was okay because, do you know what? Secondary was even worse, so we'll just put primary to one side. So I've seen you work um, in other contexts, and one of the things that I've always admired about your leadership is the way that you take people with you. And I know that you build relationships very well, but you but you also nurture and look after those relationships. How did you speak that degree of truth to primary leaders and primary staff who at that point probably thought they were doing okay? But, but they didn't think they were doing okay. They were absolutely crying out to be unified as a team. They wanted to do their very best, their very best. I've, I've met very few people who go to work every day and don't want to make a difference and are working above and beyond the expectation. And those people existed in AET. So where there were really, really strong heads, where there was great practice, wasn't recognized, wasn't used, wasn't developed or nurtured the education chatter around AET was, this is the worst performing trust in the country. There is no hope. I am fairly sure that there were conversations going on even about the viability of the trust in 2017, given the standards in primary and secondary, given the financial deficit, given the fact that it was 78 disparate schools all just trying to do what they thought was best without any sense of belonging. So number one was bring those people together, those primary head teachers together, look them in the eyes and say, come on guys, one AET, one way of working, what what can we do together? Nurture, nurture the strong people, but also don't be afraid to take the tough decisions and where there are weak leaders, then you have to have the conversations to say, this is this is going to be the hardest job you've ever done. It's going to be a completely different way of working. And if it's not for you, let's part company. But you can go with dignity. What does the phrase 180 mean? It means something very different now than it did when, yeah. when we first started two and a half years ago. So two and a half years ago, one AET was, let's just start thinking of ourselves as one trust. So there was an absolute sense in 2017 of them and us. Mm. And the easiest way to bridge the gap between a governing body in Caldicott's or a head teacher in Essex or a member of an executive team in Euston or an HR business partner working at home was to say, this is one trust, this is one AT. So first of all, it was just a phrase that defined that we were becoming one trust. Now it's absolutely rooted in our vision, our mission and our values. Two and a half years on, you could talk to children about our values in school. You could talk to colleagues who are sitting outside in this office and they would be able to articulate to you that one AET is about finding your remarkable, being remarkable and motivating colleagues to come and work to inspire children to lead remarkable lives. Simon Sinek's stuff on the Golden Circles, where he talks about the why, the how, and the what. Yeah. Uh, I think you've just given a really, really clear articulation of the why. 
but the why alone won't, wouldn't have produced the improvement in outcomes that we saw in 2019. Tell me a bit about the how and the what that happened in the primary sector that saw the trust produce possibly one of the biggest improvements in the primary trust of your scale uh, between 2017 and 2019. The first part of the how is inextricably linked to the why and that this is one trust. So if I am a head teacher in Birmingham, in a high performing school in Birmingham, I have as much responsibility for a school struggling in Leeds to make age-related expectations as I do for my own pupils. That was, num that was number one. The second part of that then was, what are the processes or some of the non-negotiables or standardised ways of working that we can easily put across the trust that won't impact on um, workload that won't ask for people to give more than they are doing but will provide almost like a, a hand that will catch you if you fall or fail what can we do to support you in your school improvement journey wherever you are on that scale and what can those non-negotiables be how do we then connect people and places so that on our national scale, we are making the best use of every resource that we have. Some of the criticism that AET has faced is how can you operate on a national scale? Why don't you work regionally? And I think that actually our strength is our national scale because I can call on any type of school to help anywhere in the country. So if you are a coastal community school in Essex and you are struggling with churn, guess what? I've got somebody in Middlesbrough yeah. who's conquered that, who absolutely can get high standards with an 80% churn. I've got a school in Torquay with a very, very settled white British community that is so deprived but is performing out of its skin. This is the 21st century. If we are constricted by the geography of England, then you can't be in the education space anymore. You, you've got to innovate and you've got to be creative. One of the very first things to change at AET was governance. I asked Jonathan Wielden, who leads on governance, what he thought governance at its best looks like. I would tend to use the word uh, rigour and adaptability particularly i use the second word i think i think the first word is perhaps not particularly contentious in a governance environment adaptability might cause more surprise in this environment but I, mm. I i use that word because i think the phenomenon of the growth of large multi-academy trusts is such that it's taking some time for the legacy of single school governance to be adapted to uh, what really is a fundamentally different beast in these large multi-academy trusts and there is a danger that people misunderstand what governance really is. The governance practice AT is really interesting around what you do at the local level Yeah. Uh, and I go as far as saying it's quite unique although I think another a number of trusts are beginning to think about yeah. the, tr the transition from a traditional local governing board into something more representative yeah. in that respect. Could you just outline for me what that looks like uh, at the school level in terms of the structure that you have in place to ensure there is a degree of local accountability through the governance model? Sure. I think the, f the first thing I'd like to say about why our model gets that sort of reaction is, is that there is a tendency when talking about 
schools governance to only think of it in terms of what happens on a local governing board. Yeah. And it's really important when we look to the structure of multi-academy trusts and their raison d'etre is that governance is is bigger than that. I mean, there are a lot of central resources and, and various lines of accountability through, through our line management and through our school support services that offer a range of support and challenge and accountability through these different mechanisms of which one, albeit a very important one, is the local governing board. Um, now, to, to come back to that point about local accountability, we we came to the conclusion pretty much from the outset that we didn't think that the traditional model of having one or two parents on a local governing board was the best way to get that local uh, voice, if you like, of, of community and parent members, which is why we created this uh, this concept of the Parent and Community Advisory Board, such that we had effectively two parallel boards, one being the, the, the formal local governing board, which is what we call the professionalised model, and then this strong voice, which is uh, invited and entitled to attend part of that governing board and to present a termly report. And we felt that by allowing that Parent Community Advisory Board to be self-organising and, and we would make it a very much a target of each head to promote a thriving mm. PCAB as we call them would strengthen a Parent and Community Advisory Board Great. PCAB yes um, that if we put all our efforts and resources into really creating great PCABs that that would give a much stronger representation. One of the things that I, I've always been really interested in, and I think it's something which a lot of trusts are beginning to think about, is the role of professional educators, like the CEO, for example, and academy principals, fulfilling a governance role somewhere in the system. Yeah. But of course, you already have that that model within yes. within the the microsystem of the AT structure. Could you talk to me a little bit about the the thinking behind the peer principal element of that, and how heads get an opportunity to be on on the board of another local academy and and whether that works or not yes it will, i mean the feedback we, we have uh, we've had a survey on this uh, a few months ago and the, the feedback from well, all involved particularly from the principal involved was, was very positive it is a, a symbiotic relationship whereby mm. they are bringing knowledge in that role to the to the sort of sister academy um, but it's also very developmental for the heads themselves yes um, and certainly that has been happening and they do like it. it it's, a, it's quite a demand on time mm. uh, because in, in, in our model we expect each head or principal to be on two um, sister academy boards, one of the, the same phase in, but in a different region and the, a different phase but in the same region, one of yes. the phase secondary or primary. Yeah. I, I absolutely understand how the, 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 the involvement of principals in the governance model in terms of providing support is really clear and very valid. Is it realistic to expect a peer principal to challenge the standards in another person's school and the trust to appear? Is, does that happen or is that not part of the role that you're expecting them to do? I think it's generally working because it's done in such a positive atmosphere. And, and I think the other thing is that this is not just a, a small group of people, um, you know, all marking their own homework as it mm. were and having a collective. There are there are several other elements to the core governing board, which is, is obviously we've got the, the independent chair, we've got the phase director, but actually all boards um, have other governors involved, which may be, it may be other people from the school support service team, but we have said all along, and, and actually this bit is perhaps a bit that's not always said clearly enough or, or understood clearly enough, is that we we strongly encourage having at least one or two strong local lay governors. Uh, we retained some from the original one when we made this big change in, in 2017. We certainly retained some at the time. 
but we have invited others since then where where we identify that there are these uh, independent lay governors who can bring something to the to the table because of their knowledge experience or whatever so we, we've got those people as well so so there is a sort of um, a good set of diverse opinions mm. um, and, I, and I don't think the uh, uh, the pressure on one head to critique another one is is unduly uncomfortable David Hatchett was brought in as National Director of Secondary Schools. When he joined the organisation two years ago, in the first half term, he visited all 28 of AET's secondary schools, from Middlesbrough in the north to the Isle of Wight in the south. He told me about some of the things he got to grips with. In that early phase where you spent that first half term mm. um, touring Britain <laughs> in, into the 28 schools, right. Whilst I know that was that would have been a grueling induction, it probably gave you capacity to get to know people and start to build relationships. Were you able to capitalise that on that in the twelve months following that you, you you'd had visited their schools and you'd got to know them a bit as people and you had a beginning of an understanding of what needed to happen? Was, did that bear dividend for you? Absolutely, and I think the head teachers respected the fact that I reached out so so soon into post mm. and wanted that to be a face to face, wanted to see it Walsall or on the ground. Um, but what was also interesting was that it wasn't just about weeding up where perhaps there was bad practice or poor leadership in, in schools. And, th- you know, this would absolutely be a sort of, sort of key lesson, I think, for anyone going into a role like this, is that you can look at the data, but it is always only a starting point. Yes. And what that first six weeks for me did was confirm where the data seemed to suggest the hypothesis was right, mm. but also the, it also flagged where I was wrong where my hypothesis was wrong and I was in Unity City Academy yeah. uh, you know, which has been in the Academy's programme probably one of the, one of the forever <laughs> yes exactly um, the summer before I joined David they 5% of students achieved a good pass in English and Maths 5% students and I thought I'd be going in and seeing something horrendous and I'd have no conf- confidence in, in the head teacher that same head teacher I promoted twice She's a sister leader. She's had a yeah. huge impact in Middlesbrough and now in, in the yeah. Midlands. And I remember having a very similar experience to that, visiting Unity as National Schools Commissioner, expecting to see some really troubling practice, but actually being really impressed by the individual, mm-hmm. but also the way that she was leading her team. And, and I think that's a very good... It's a, it's a salutary message, isn't it, about data opens up a conversation, but it isn't the conversation around that. So after you've done your your 28 school visits and you've begun to become part of the team and and seeing the challenge, let's talk about secondary school improvement because it's not as simple as an input-output measure in that respect. And and I don't think there is a linear model of how you improve schools. What were some of the things you started to build strategies around and start to talk to people about embedding in their schools to start the journey that you're now making? So the, the, the first would really be around the vision and values of both the trust and the work we did on getting those right for the trust, because that was absolutely a key piece of work. There, there was a sort of strap line, which was to make our best better, mm. which is a, I know you weren't an English teacher, but you, you'll struggle with the grammatical uh, correctness of that. Well, I certainly couldn't say it to music. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it wasn't happening. Yes. They weren't making their best better. Um, so, so that wasn't right, and so we did a huge project to get that right, and we engaged all of the heads, all of the governing boards, and all of the PCAPs in that process, mm-hmm. and all the central team staff. So getting vision values and the buy into that, I think has been really fundamental and a really important driver for success, and all, all sort of going towards the right 
direction, all aligned. Um, the second thing is in, is having some agreed non-negotiables, not yeah. a particularly good term, I know, but some areas where we say, actually, this is the industry best practice. So, um, you know, relatively basic things like your curriculum should favour English and maths, where they are weak. So we, we talk about 20% of teaching time yeah. being devoted to both of those subjects, and that's a, that's a non-negotiable. We uh, have a focus on year 11, where attainment's been weak in the past. So all schools have an extended school day to four o'clock, specifically for year 11. Um, you know, if we're still doing that in five years' time, I think we failed. Mm. Um, but there is a need to catch up at the moment. So, so getting the emphasis on year 11 right. The curriculum, David, has been a huge piece. So, and this is where I think the trust is increasingly adding value for the schools. So we're, we're lucky to have a, a really top team. I think one of the best that I've sort of seen in the sector of curriculum specialists, SLEs. Uh, we've got 99 on our books. Uh, and we deploy them at pace. Yeah. So getting the curriculum intent right in our schools, making sure that it's been delivered on the ground effectively, um, and then we do the, the you know the evaluating impact, the outcome. To sum it up, um, increasing consistency and standardisation where it adds value. Yeah. So it's it's not a we know best approach. You know, it's not a lesson in a box. I expect mm-hmm. everyone to be teaching. Pythagoras theorem you know, Tuesday morning but yeah. but there are some key areas where we think that we've got quality assured good practice leadership at all levels so I talked earlier about the head teacher getting the head teacher right uh, that's absolutely vital but actually what's driving improvements we're finding mm-hmm. now is at the leadership level as well as education standards one of the issues that came up again and again when I was national schools commissioner was the trust's finances Julian talked about the scale of the challenge. We were under huge financial pressures. Mm. You'll recall we, you know, we'd have two years of eight million pound deficits. Um, there were genuine issues about the solvency of, of AET, um, and I didn't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater. But one of the first things I knew I had to do was to do a bit of a restructure at AET. We needed to get the finances under control, and I thought it was important that the central school support services team, you know, assisted with that. And uh, within the first few months, we um, realised a saving of about 30% of staff um, and about £1.3 million. I asked James Nicholson, AET's Chief Finance Officer, about the work he has done to bring in a regionalised model for operational support to the Trust's academies. From my point of view, um, not needing the financial and operations systems for every school but actually regionalising it so that we um, then were able to work together and pull all those teams across the country. Do you have people who are reporting to you who are effectively looking at the financial oversight of those regional clusters as well? Yes, so we changed the um, working relationship so rather than reporting to a head teacher they report into a regional finance person okay. uh, and they work really very closely, very closely with the schools. I'm, I'm really interested in the regionalisation piece here because although for trust the size of EACT and AET, it's really logical that that's the right way to structure it. I also think there's something about the structuring regionally of smaller trusts as well, particularly when they've got quite a geographical f- footprint uh, across an area. So would, would you see that a regional structure would work for a multi-academy trust of say, I, let's say 50 to 20 schools, but where they were working across more than one RSC region? Yeah, I think it's really important that um, the operations 
and particularly finance for all the operations, are really close to the school, and I don't think that you mm. can do that from a centre, um, which was a shift actually from when I was at United Learning Trust, certainly in the first few years, we would have said that actually we could do everything yeah. and manage everything from the centre. But um, I think the geographical spread in particular um, really puts a stress on that and you, you can't mm. do it. You have to be close to school to understand what the issues are so that you can work quickly with them. And do you find that there's a better balance between being proactive and reactive when you've got that level of insight of what the real challenge is at the, at, at the school level? Yeah, so I think it's really important. One of the things that um, we've changed a lot of was thinking about forecasting and thinking yeah. about the future. Um, so GCSEs and A-levels obviously take two years to go through the whole course. It takes even longer to plan a change in those mm. um, uh, and, and the way that you're going to structure the curriculum. So trying to get everybody to plan more than 12 months in, a, in advance was a big point. And, and I think people have got caught in the mindset of curriculum design, uh, curriculum-led financial planning, which is a kind of almost, in, in some respects, an in-the-moment decision. But it's not, is it? It's actually a conversation that you have to have 12, 18 months out from the day that you start teaching that new syllabus or that new course. Yeah. Have you been involved in those kind of conversations here? Um, so we do a lot of um, curriculum-led financial planning. Um, so it started with looking at the schools that really were in a financial mess uh, and needed to um, sort themselves out. Uh, we took a, a lot of um, costs and restructured um, those schools um, <clears throat> at the same time as educational uh, results were going up as well. Yeah. It's really important, but obviously, clearly, that's what we're here to do. Indeed. There's no good cutting all the costs and yeah. the impact. Uh, I remember those conversations with you in the DFE very well. <laughs> Curriculum uh, planning is part of the um, annual budget cycle. Yeah. And the annual budget cycle, as you know, is not just the next academic year, mm. it's actually looking at, at least the next three academic years. Yeah, um, so yes, yeah, so we, we're really pushing that hard. And we've, we've modelled all of the um, different types, so phases and sizes of school that we've got, so that we can benchmark our, our schools against what we think is, is logical. Unusually, AET has a Director of Education who works alongside the Directors of Primary and SEND and Secondary. With a wide-ranging remit that covers everything from curriculum and well-being through to business intelligence and learning technology, on joining the organisation, Francis Soul immediately set about ensuring that the education support services were not only fit for purpose, but leading edge. Everybody in my team has two tracks. There's a school improvement track, which is our absolute priority to improve the performance of our academies, to deliver the interventions, to deliver the, the services at the point of need where things are not working. But they have a second track of their strategic you know, directive and, and goals to move the academies, to move the trust forward to be future thinking. What next? What are we going to do next? So. And I do think we are very forward thinking. So learning in technology and our use of technology would be a really good example. And our use of understanding of technology to drive our data. So the sort of um, we are pretty much at the cutting edge in terms of school level data. Um, we've brought in the concept and the idea of a data lake using Google's BigQuery. Um, we're looking at how we can have free flowing data to bring multiple different data sets together and then export it and visualize it. Um, um, you know, we're constantly 
been asked, can we come and see what you're doing um, and what's next? One of our values is push the limits and be brave. Um, and that's what that's what we do. So when we have a full team meeting, it's about, okay, on at the beginning of term, we went through stop the clocks with an assessment. This is what we need to do as a priority, get the English better, get, you know, so do this, sort these things out. This is our time to think, get our heads above. How are we going to move the trust forward? What's it going to look like you know, by the end of this year and into the next year? But if I pick up on that last point that you've made there, it, it, I'm going to try to characterise what you've said, and it may not, may not be a, a completely accurate picture, but it feels like your, your tenure in the role so far has been very much about, first of all, getting the trust to be effective for what it should have been, the, the nuts and bolts of making mm -hmm. a large organisation work. And then a movement into the maintenance and the consistency of that. And now you're describing things about kind of the, the next steps. Yeah. What does what does the next two or three years look like in in terms of your leadership role here? What what, what are the things that you want to bring to this organisation that build upon the platforms that you've started with? My vision is that some of these sort of uh, what I call the cavalry charge in the year to get year eleven through to get you know sort of year six through is downsized yeah so all these sort of interventions and that that takes our energy um and that we can move that funding into really sort of pushing the boundaries of um you know our approach to teaching and learning teaching and learning using technology different sort of structures um the a huge change in curriculum with the change in the Ofsted framework has really shifted how we think about curriculum and its, you know, its driver and its impact whole school as opposed to we used to think, and most schools would, in terms of individual subjects and outcomes for those subjects and, you know, sort of the pathways that the students were on and now it's about the intent of the whole school and what this school mm. thinks. So that's a big change and I see that sort of pushing forward and the character and the sort of skills curriculum that we are sort of embedding is a big move. Part of Francis Soule's remit was to deliver AET's learning and development offer. This work involves working closely with the HR team. Kevin Parrish, AET's Director of HR, talked to me about how the organisation had reshaped its offer to support schools, particularly now that results were improving. So over the last few years, we, we've provided sort of a HR business partner type uh, relationship with the school's leadership teams, um, providing them advice on, on how to deal with um, uh, teachers that are uh, underperforming, um, career progression, um, training, etc, etc. Um, but over the last couple of years, we've, we've um, during the transformation, we have, um, and the turnaround plan, we've We've changed the way that we work with school leaders um, from a very reactive service mm. type uh, delivery model where a head teacher would ring us up, I've got a problem with X, um, please provide me with support, to hopefully a much more reactive service um, where we've actually um, remodeled the entire sort of HR and finance function across the trust. Um, and we now have um, literally at the start of this year all of our uh, regional HR and finance hubs have been set up. So in simplistic terms, where we used to have quite a traditional business, uh, school business manager mm. role um, and the uh, admin transactional work by school done in different ways, and bear in mind we had 60 different ways of operating, we brought into a standard new operating model where we've, um, uh, where we've clustered schools together and created uh, mini hubs with professional HR and finance colleagues 
um, providing the service to those head teachers. And and do they report into you? Are they, are they your team in effect? They're now um, centralised, so they report ultimately through into me, uh, and we have an appropriate um, management structure underneath that to, to manage that function. Because it is, you know, when you think we've got over 5,000 employees, mm. that's quite a large structure. Um, so one of the challenges I think that multi-academy trusts of any size face is that consistency. So yeah. so I, I'm, there are two teachers doing the same job in the trust, but they're actually treated slightly differently because of the legacy they brought them together. Yeah. And, and when, when you've got 60 plus academies, yeah. that's a big challenge, isn't it? Yeah. Could you talk us a bit about how that structure has helped with that? Yeah, I mean... Um I mean, in terms of the service, first of all, um, you know, we, we had schools where there was um, um, a disparity and unfairness because um, some schools, particularly smaller primaries in their budget, could not afford a dedicated HR mm-hmm. resource. They couldn't even afford a, a shared HR resource in some cases. So, you know, we had a completely different approach right across the piece, yeah. which this has evened out and standardised, you know, primary academies in particular um, have more capacity and, and easier access to HR resource than they used to have un- under the older model really uh, and therefore from that point of view in terms of everything we do from a people perspective again that is now being more and more standardized so if we look at the recruitment side of things mm. when we're recruiting uh, a teacher there's a there's a standard more efficient process to go through um, we have rolled out a new HR payroll system during the last couple of years so that everyone is now on that system so we yeah. can get um, access to all their information and standard HR KPIs and benchmark and uh, work with the school's leadership where they've got turnover and um, in particular sickness issues mm-hmm. which has a massive impact on the performance of, uh, of a school where sure, they, particularly sure. where they've got long-term sickness cases and persistent short-term. Um, so yeah I think that's been an area where we're starting to see Uh, the fruits of our labor really. Jonathan Allen, Director of Marketing and Communications, talked about the importance of brand in the sector. Often a word that defies opinion in education, I asked him about the challenges he had faced. It's quite interesting over the gosh how many years it's been since I've been in in, in the education world. um, It it, it kind of started off as a perception of sort of director of drawing, director of pictures. And this has had to evolve over time because ultimately the output is very often that visible aspect of a video, a banner, a website, a prospectus, Mm. etc, etc, etc. But underneath it has to be absolute strong foundations of a strategy which can only come about through deep market knowledge and customer knowledge. So you've got to absolutely understand what the barriers to joining the school are, why people are joining it, tap into that, understand uh, what might make them overcome those barriers, apply that thinking, and at the same time, draw the overall brand proposition into play so that you have a complete package that then actually is executed in a thoroughly engaging manner. So thinking about the um, the last two, two, three years and the... Uh, the, the the turnaround that's starting to happen and lots of evidence that it's that it's really beginning to embed now and that the trust is moving forward very rapidly and looking at alongside the sophistication that you brought to this particular segment of work what are the things that you've done over the last couple of years that you think have been the most impactful um well i suppose it comes back to the beginning which is actually establishing a brand yeah. and standing for something 
last year actually we 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 had competitions that were around something we called Remarkable World, which fed into Remarkable Lives, and that culminated in a, in a rather ambitious um, festival at which all our schools came, we had 1,000 people, 900 kids, 1,000 people there, 62 schools, and we had a day of celebrating our Remarkable as an organization, as a trust. And the, the road to getting there was challenging, was exciting, uh, but the impact that that has had has been absolutely phenomenal mm. in terms of changing a culture and driving employee engagement. But that's one area. The other area is, is that forensic understanding of the market and the data and the knowledge of our parents and why they, and prospective parents and why they choose, why they leave, uh, and what will motivate them to choose the schools in the first place and driving that and packaging it in a way that becomes relevant to them and persuasive. Having spent some time with the team, I asked Julian for any final reflections on the turnaround. Although it's been uh, 14, 15 months since I was in the DFE, even in the period of time up to the end of the summer of 2018 when I left, the credibility of the organisation was becoming established in, in, in that respect. Yeah. And we sit here three years, three years and two months after we first met with an organisation where particularly in primary standards are, are, are really moved, inspection outcomes have really moved. Financially, this trust is sustainable and viable with, with a governance model that I think is quite unique, quite creative, quite innovative, but it's doing the job which great governance should do. And against that backdrop, I wonder, looking back over the last three years, if, uh, if time travel existed in, in the real world, what advice would you give to yourself in, in December 2016, knowing what you know now about the journey that you've been on? Yeah. Um, time is, is hugely important. And I do think sequencing is terribly um, important. Mm -hmm. And you can always revisit sequencing I think it's important to, to 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 be flexible and as I look back on things um, I think that sense of commitment versus flexibility is something that you continuously need to be testing yourself on I mean working phenomenally hard is terribly important you know candidly if you work twice as hard you give yourself twice as many opportunities to you know to get it right yes. so that's the commitment part you know you, you do need to go 80-20. You need to acknowledge you're going to make some mistakes mm. along the way. Um, but if you can put in the energy and the effort and you can sort of revisit the sequencing, then I think you know that can make a, a tremendous um, difference. But you know, one of the things that, that we, you know, that when I shared that plan with you and with the with the ministers, there was a sequence. You know, we were going to get the finances sorted out and that was going to be a two-year period and we were yeah. going to halve the deficit and we were going to get to break even in two years and we did that. Um, we were going to sort out the governance, uh, particularly the local governing bodies, and we managed to achieve that effectively in about month six or seven yes. um, of the turnaround. And then we said the primary bit, you know, would start to turn around first and the secondary bit would, would, would follow on later. And sure enough, you know, we've had three consecutive years of key stage two, read, write, maths, combined improvement up 21% mm. in three years. Um, but the sequencing, you know, 
it would be nice to have run maybe a couple more things in parallel. This last year, the end of sort of year three of the turnaround, every single one of our key stage one and key stage five indicators was positive, and the offsets were positive for the secondaries, um, you know, as well as the primaries. Could I have had the secondaries brought that program forward, you know, six months or so? Maybe. But then I'd have run the risk of not delivering on some of the other yeah. things that yeah. uh, that I said would be done. So I, I want to ask you uh, a question about about the your own leadership journey through this and and how you personally have coped with with the challenge that you've that you've identified in the last few few minutes. Um, I do it with a slight note of hesitation as the person that interrupted your holiday <laughs> in a different time zone, which may well have been the afternoon for me. It was four o'clock in the morning for you, so I so I, I note the irony in my question. But but for you personally, you know, you've been through a period of time where you've shown extraordinary resilience as a leader to deliver what you promised to deliver both to the communities that you serve right the way through to, to ministers and Department of Education. How do you uh, look after yourself as a leader? Um, I, the most important thing is that, you know, of course we're all individuals, but we're all people and we're all team members uh, and we all need, you know, help and support. And I, I think three things probably buoyed me, three things probably buoyed me during that, that period. Um, one was the sense of purpose, the fact that mm. if we get this right, so that was always a wonderful anchor for me, you know, keep remembering what the goal is, keep remembering what, what, what the vision is, um, acknowledge that you'll be buffeted by storms along the way, but, but, but retain that importance. So that, that, that was, that's, that's a personal thing. The second bit is, is, is other people um, around you, and I needed to have an extraordinarily positive and close relationship with my chair yes, and, and through him with the board of trustees. So there were times when I was, you know, when I was run down, frustrated, um, uh, you know, felt that things should be, could be going differently. And just to have other people that you can sound off to and uh, get support from is, is, is terribly important. So I think that's the second one. And then the third one is, you know, it's not about individual, it is about teams coming together. And as my team built, um, that made life, you know, extraordinarily easy for, for, for me. They brought so much to the, to the trust in terms of ability, and they freed up so much more time for me to do other things as well. And hence why I think, you know, you can get sort of exponential improvement. Because if you're building a team and each of the individuals on that team are, are working better and they're working together better, you know, everyone's options for, for freedom and progress become you know, become all that more pronounced. Remarkable Lives is our, is our pursuit. The next 10 years is going to be about picking off particular aspects. So one big campaign, which I consider to be a, a two-year campaign properly, is around well-being. Mm. And we're looking at areas around mental health. We're looking at areas around attendance and behaviour. We're looking at deprivation and pupil premium. Uh, and we're looking at our curriculum and developing our curriculum in a more exciting um, um, way, which I think the new Ofsted framework will allow, but which we'd already started at yeah. AMT, saying this is more important. You know, other areas of commitment, we've brought in some fantastic people for careers and destinations. Um, we're doing wonderfully well, having been rather poor performers against the Gatsby benchmarks. We're now very comfortable above um, 
um, national. So the team will start to articulate more of these areas of strength that we want to go into. And we're really drawing on the inherent quality of a lot of the people we have at the moment. You know, we have system leaders, we have little working parties, we have working groups that are doing things, you know, it might be around phonics, it might be around sixth form, it might be. And suddenly there's a confidence and there's an excitement and a belief that, that we can do things radically different. And I'd love for AET over the next decade to become, you know, loved and respected for, for being an innovator, mm. for, for being brave and for being bold. And the turnaround phase was involved boldness and bravery, but of a different type. Confident schools breed confident communities, and mm. the and the agenda that you describe that builds upon the first three years of the turnaround absolutely gives these communities the chance to think very differently about the organisation and the kind of education their children will receive in the future. Julian Drinkle, thank you very much.